So welcome back. I hope, you, uh, hope you're doing well. Uh, we got a, we've had a little bit of sunshine the last couple of days, which I personally find rather encouraging. Um, it's funny how the weather does on a certain level affect your mood or your outlook or your desire to sleep in or get up and get something done. So it's nice that we can be here tonight. And uh, those of you at the back, if you want to sit back there, that's fine, but there's room up here too. Can you hear okay back there? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer, and um, then we're going to spend some time tonight talking a little bit more about the Holy Spirit, and I'm especially interested in talking a bit more about helping us to understand how the Spirit works in our lives as, uh, as believers. So let's just bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we stand before you today and we acknowledge that we are uh, but flesh and blood. Uh, you created us out of the dust of the ground, the Bible says, and uh, it just kind of rings true to our experience because we recognize that our bodies are frail and weak. We don't, they don't last forever. But there's a certain part of us that uh, has a sense of uh, eternality to it. And uh, we long to live forever. We, we, we long to be, uh, even when this body dies, we long to be with you. And thankfully, the Bible tells us that's possible through Christ, that there's a spirit within us that uh, when it's regenerated by uh, God's grace, uh, is eternal in nature, and uh, we can look forward to, to spending eternity with you. Uh, in this life, Lord, help us to understand what it means to walk in the Spirit, to live in the Spirit, to commune with you as a God who is Spirit. It's so easy just to sort of live life in the tangible, getting things done, paying bills, um, engaging in different chores and tasks, and so easy to sort of overlook the spiritual dimension that's very much a part of us and that we, we, we long to feed and see grow. So, Father, we pray that as we study what it means when you tell us that God is spirit and who the Holy Spirit is, that would also just help us to understand a little bit more about who we are and would assist us in communing with you as our God, who is spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Oversee our class tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. As a, okay, here's what I want to do. I want to do a quick, a quick review. And uh, someone's coming to that front door. We don't normally open that, but if it's not open, maybe you could just let her in. So, Nathan, that, that's your, uh, Nathan, it's your translator. You're good. You're good, buddy. My sign, langu- my sign language is a little shaky. Yeah, a little shaky. You tell him, Kim. Yeah. yeah. It's a little weak. How did you? Oh. <laughs> sign language is lousy, so... All right. So, okay. <laughs> I'll just text back and we can text back and forth. How's that? All right. So, I want to do a bit of a review since we've been away for 14 days since we met last and all that. So, let's just do a quick review here. So, uh, we started off. So, we've we spent two weeks talking about the church. And starting to weave into that the nature of worship, we've spent one week talking about the Holy Spirit, talking a little bit about worship. Today we're going to continue our conversation about the Holy Spirit. So just by way of review, 
the importance of the Spirit. This is the overarching truth that I want you to be thinking about when it comes to the Holy Spirit as it relates to worship, and it's this. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the person within the triune Godhead at which, here here I am down here, God becomes personal in my life in the here and now. Now, if you were living back in the first century when Jesus walked the earth, you would say, well, no, it's when Jesus speaks to you, that's when God becomes most personal. But Jesus has ascended to the Father in heaven, and so the Holy Spirit, I want you to think of the Holy Spirit as the point at which God becomes personal or experiential in your life. So you need to learn, if you don't already know this, as a Christian, how to commune and communicate with and be led by the Spirit of God. If you don't understand that, then you really don't have a full understanding or a full uh, relationship with God. You may have a positional relationship. You're saved. You're one of his sons or daughters. But we need to learn to commune with the Holy Spirit. And the Bible speaks a lot about this, but some of us just don't get it at all. So I want to help us to understand that. I want to help myself to understand it more. The Holy Spirit is the point at which the Trinity becomes personal in the life of the believer. And we don't need to overcomplicate that, by the way. So he makes God experiential. He's prominently at work in this age. We're not not in any way, shape, or form minimizing the role of the Father or Jesus in the church. But we are emphasizing the role of the Spirit in the church and in our lives and in our worship and all that kind of thing. So we talked a little bit about the background. There's Ruach in the Old Testament. It's the the dominant word used to translate spirit. There's pneuma in the New Testament. We talked about the personality of the spirit. So the spirit is not a power, an immaterial thing that floats around. The spirit is not the force that emanates from God. The spirit is just as much of a person within the Trinity as Jesus is, as the Father is. I mean, there's personal pronouns used to describe him. The Bible talks about the Spirit speaking. He's the object of faith. He's being worshipped. We baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and God's act of force. No, the Spirit. We're told not to sin against the Spirit, resist, not to resist the Spirit, not to grieve the Spirit. These are just passages, there's many others, that push us towards a doctrinal understanding that the Spirit is a person within the triunity of God. Not a thing. And that's why we use personal pronouns like he, even though he's not male per se, to refer to the Holy Spirit. He, he knows the things of God, he convicts us of sin. He descended on Christ at his baptism. And then the divinity of the Spirit. We looked at several passages that emphasize that the Spirit of God is God. Fully God, in fact. He speaks as God. I gave you Isaiah 6, Acts 28, Hebrews 10. He speaks as God. In fact, he's sometimes called the Spirit of God. Believers are called the temple of God because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. 
blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We preached on this a couple weeks ago. Not forgivable. We helped you to understand what that means. He knows everything, 1 Corinthians 2. He exists everywhere. What does Psalm 139 say about the Spirit? Verse 7. Who can flee from your presence, from the presence of your Spirit, right? We can't, can't get away. He's everywhere. Uh, he does what God does. So the works of the Spirit are considered the works of God. He fashioned the world. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. Genesis 1-2. He regenerates the soul. To be born of the Spirit is to be born of God, the Bible teaches us. He's the source of knowledge, the giver of inspiration, teacher, guide, sanctifier, comforter. He makes alive our mortal bodies, Romans 8-11. Okay, so that's all review. Are you convinced that the Spirit's God? Anybody need more convincing? We're good? Are you convinced that he's personal? Are you convinced that the Holy Spirit is a point at which God becomes personal in the life of the church? Everybody good with that? Any questions or comments about that? All right. So what I want to do tonight is uh, talk a little bit more about the person of the Spirit, but I want to talk about the person of the Spirit and start to move us in the direction of helping us to understand the person of the Spirit as the Spirit interacts with me, with you, with us as a church. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about the office and work of the Spirit in the life of the church and go through several passages. So we're going to do some case studies tonight. You can call them. We're going to look at a lot of scripture tonight and try to understand these scriptures. All right. So I want to actually start with with John. We're going to go to John 4, verse 24. This passage is not speaking specifically about the one we know is the Holy Spirit, but it tells us something about God that is foundational to our understanding of the Holy Spirit. So in John chapter 4, verse 24, it says, God is spirit, and those who worship him, anybody here interested in worshiping God? Must worship him in what? Spirit and in truth. Might, you might, it might interest you to know that there's only four places in the, in the New Testament where it says God is. God is spirit. God is love. God is light. And God is a consuming fire. I'm going to forget because I'm just doing this. God is spirit. God is love. God is light. God is a consuming fire. So you got John 4, 1 John 1, 1 John 4. I don't remember the verses. You can look them up. And Hebrews 13, 8, something like that. Okay? So this is one of the God, the four God is statements in the Bible. And it tells us God is spirit. But then it tells us, Let's put some of this stuff on the board. God is spirit. So the God is. This is telling us something about God. Okay? And then I'm down here. So I've encountered God as spirit. So now this is telling me something about how I'm to respond to this declaration. I'm the worshiper. And there's two prongs to my worship. I must worship God in spirit, 
and in truth. So, John is helping us to understand two things about our worship. And in doing so, reinforcing a couple things about God. If we just worship God in spirit, we might think he's kind of immaterial, so existential that he's not definable, airy-fairy, nebulous. So the word truth balances that out. Truth emphasizes knowledge. We can know certain things about the spirit. We can be thinking certain things about the spirit. Certain things are true about the spirit. Certain things aren't true about the spirit. But if I'm just here, I may miss out on the truly spiritual encounter I can have with God. I might just think, I might think about him in too concrete of a way. And my worship then is reduced to do's and don'ts, rules and regulations, verbal declarations, I don't know, running around a religious building, walking in step, whatever it might be. So these balance, these two balance out the nature of worship. There is a truth dimension to worship. Now that truth captures everything we know about the Holy Spirit, the stuff we've studied. He's God, he's personal, he's convictor, he's redeemer, he's regenerator, he's holy, don't grieve him. He convicts, he rebukes, all that. But also helps us to understand that there's a spiritual encounter that I can have with God that does not, hear me clearly on this, doesn't push the mind aside, doesn't push the mind aside, but kind of goes beyond the logical, an encounter I can have with him in my, the spiritual part of my being, which can be hard to put into words. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So, some of you didn't grow up as one of these, so you're like, okay, this is all new to me. Some of you grew up in a tradition where you only did this. Your worship was all about truth, saying the right thing, reading the right scripture, walking the right steps, the liturgy, whatever it might be. Just You were taught that worshiping God is about proper thinking. So this is easy for you. Some of you may have grown up in traditions that emphasize this, the mystical encounter, the union with God, the ecstatic relationship. And this either doesn't matter much to you or you're still kind of working through this. And some of the encounters you had with God, you may have discovered, in fact, not true. So each of us fights the extremes of our personalities, our denominational backgrounds, our churches, our experiences, and we're aiming for what? Both, not either or. So as we look at these scriptures, the idea of worshiping God in spirit and in truth comes into greater focus. Let's think about some biblical notions about who the Holy Spirit is so that we can approach him in spirit and in truth. So let's go to Psalm 139, verse 7. Uh, you probably know this psalm, those of you that are interested in, for instance, pro-life issues, which we should all be interested in, by the way. This is one of the psalms that speaks of the value 
of the unborn. So you'll probably remember Psalm 139, verse 13. David says, uh, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, obviously David wasn't thinking about abortion at the time because it would have been inconceivable for anyone to even want to do that in his culture. But tells us something about his understanding, God's understanding of an unborn child. And so we can look at passages like that to help us to understand the nature of humanity in the womb. And there's more to it if you want to read further. But what I want to do is I want to go back up to verse 7, maybe like the second most well-known part of this psalm. And there it says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And then it just kind of keeps going in that regard. If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. Make the bed in Sheol, you're there, and so forth. So what does that tell us about God? Two things. He's everywhere. And he is spirit. It's not trick questions. So God is spirit. And God is everywhere. So evidently, John didn't make up the idea that God is an immaterial being. So this is where it's difficult for us as humans to sometimes comprehend the fullness of God because we're so material in our outlook. If it's material, it's real. If it's immaterial, it's not real. It's a modern Western notion. But God is spirit. And... uh, the spirit of God is therefore uh, equal in power and glory and substance as the Father, who is also spirit, as the Son, who in his pre-incarnate state is also spirit. So in fact, those are like, I don't know how to approach the Holy Spirit, but I know how to approach the Father and the Son. The question is why? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all spirit. If you know how to pray to the Father, and that seems kind of concrete in your mind, that you're, you've got a conception or perception of who God is, then why is it the Spirit becomes so slippery for people in terms of trying to understand or conceive of who he is? The Spirit of God has been spoken of all through the Scripture. As I mentioned earlier in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water at the beginning of creation. Now, it's true, as we've talked about before, that the Holy Spirit is subordinate in his function to who? Immediately to who? Right. Secondarily to the Father. But he is equal in his what? Nancy? Substance. Substance. Authority, godness, right? And he is said then to be of the Father and of the Son. Sometimes it's the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son. He's sent by them. They operate in this world through him. God operates through the Spirit in this world. And this might be a little technical, but God operates through the Spirit But the Father also operates as a person in the Trinity through the Spirit. 
And the Son also operates as the second person of the Trinity through the Spirit. How do we know that? Because at times the Spirit is called the Spirit of God, and at times the Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. So you're like, why is he called the Spirit of Christ? That Spirit and Christ are two different persons within the Trinity. It's true. But sometimes the Father is operating through the Spirit. Sometimes Christ, the Son, is operating through the Spirit. And sometimes the Spirit is just operating as the Spirit in our world. A little technical. You, you can still be a member of our church if you don't get all that. But um, that's a biblical truth. They're sent by him and they operate through him. So he bears the same relationship to the Father as to the Son. He is said to be of the one as well as the other. He's given by the Son as well as being given by the Father. And his eternal relationship to the other persons within the Trinity is indicated by the overall Old Testament and New Testament term where he's called the Spirit of God. Okay? So... Um, let's look at some other things with regard to the Spirit. So we're going to go to Psalm, let's go to Psalm 104. That's all kind of introductory stuff. Let's go to Psalm 104. And I want to draw your attention to verse 29 and 30. One o four. Psalm 104. Okay, this is under the heading, The Office and Work of the Spirit. Who he is, what he does. Point number one, he functions as part of God's creative work in the world. So he's tied to God as creator. So Psalm 104 says, When you hide your face, they are dismayed. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. And then may the glory of the Lord endure forever. So let's just think about this for a minute. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Now, we're talking specifically, we're, we're talking generically about God here. So, based on that verse, what can we conclude about the nature of God? What would be a word you could use to capture an attribute or an activity of God from just that verse? God is what? Fill in the blank. Let's come up with some words. Okay, perfect. Source of life. Any other words you had in mind? I have one in my mind, but it's sovereign. Creator. Sustainer. That's the one I had, but source of life's really good. Creator's really good. So he's the sustainer, right? So it's pretty interesting when you think about this. Oftentimes we're like, oh yeah, I have, I have, I have no problem with the idea that God created me. But as we speak... God is sustaining me. Think about that for a minute. Just let that soak in. 
I don't know how many cells are in my body, but there's a lot of them. I have, they make up organs, tissue, muscle, bone. Here I am. I'm like an ecosystem unto myself, in a sense. Everything's kind of working in tandem. This organ affects this organ. Everything's kind of working. Blood's flowing. Mind's working. Mouth's working. Eyes are looking around. It's so easy to think of yourself as an independent being. You're just kind of sustaining yourself, eat some food, drink some water. Everything's going to be great. And from a purely biological perspective, there's some sense to that. But the Bible helps us to understand that God is actually sustaining everything about me, everything about you, everything in this world. Everything is sustained by God. If God were to remove his presence from this world, you just have a big black clump of nothingness. We just turn into nothingness. So God is sustaining our lives. And then if you go to the next verse, it says, when you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. So God's spirit is involved in God's creative work in this world. Now, you all know, because I've preached hard on this, ultimately, the Son is the creator. All things are created through him, by him, for him, Colossians chapter 1. But the Spirit, it's not like the Spirit and the Father and the Son are all separate, kind of doing their own thing. The Spirit is also involved as an agent of God to create and regenerate and restore. And this text could refer more to like spiritual creation or restoration or physical or a combination thereof. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. I just want to focus on the fact that the spirit is involved, is involved in creation and sustaining and renewing the face of the ground. So this tells us something about the necessity of the spirit to be involved. So if you want to write something down just to kind of get right to the practical, the spirit must be involved in my life or I wouldn't exist. You could write something like that down. Focusing on him as sustainer, as creator. So let's, let's build into this idea a little bit more. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 32. And I want to look at verses 14 and 15. This is a... Uh, different context. Um, Isaiah 32, uh, 14 and 15. So this is a, kind of like a, a a restoration of Israel kind of text in the immediate context. The palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, the joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. So it's like, it's like pending destruction. Everything's going to be wiped out. God often threatened the nation with disaster when they rebelled against him. But if God wants to bring restoration to that which is broken and dead. Who does the job? Until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. 
So here again, destruction, God wants to bring renewal. The Spirit of God comes in and brings about that. These are passages that help us to see the Holy Spirit as God's agent for renewal and restoration and newness and life and joy. I'm going to take you to another passage. Job 33, verse 4. I'm going to write some of these down. Job 33, 4. The Spirit of God has made me, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The Spirit of God has made me, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And then let's go back to Psalm 139. And... I'm going to read for you again part of a verse I already read in the next one. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonder, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet... There was none of them. So this passage, again, reminds us of the fact that God is creator just by itself, sustainer. The other passages come in and help us to understand a little more about that, that the Holy Spirit is sustaining, he's renewing, he's helping us to be. Now, we can think of this merely on a physical level, which under the Old Covenant, people tended to think much more physically, tangibly, temporally than we do we can think okay yeah the spirit of god is sustaining this he's just kind of making it all happen he's making sure the earth goes around the sun and the moon goes around the earth and babies are born and animals reproduce every spring and flowers come up and all that but what the new testament then does is it takes us to another level and it helps us to understand life in the spirit on a spiritual level. So this ancient idea that the Spirit of God is the one who creates and sustains the physical is now applied in extra measure to the spiritual life of the church. We cannot have spiritual life in the church if the Spirit of God is not invited, Spirit of God is not welcome, Spirit of God is not worshipped, Spirit of God is not listened to. So here's what I want to emphasize. The Spirit of God is not an optional extra to our life as Christians. He is a fundamental part of our lives as individual Christians and our life as a church. He's not an optional extra. It's not like, well, you know, I've been walking with Jesus for a while and I, I wouldn't mind getting a little extra boost, so I'm going to maybe try out the Spirit now. No, if, you're, if you haven't been walking in the Spirit, finding life in the Spirit, you have in fact lived a depleted life. And I can just tell you straight up front, of many years of my life, I lived a depleted life. Because I was following Jesus, and I was following the Father, and I had absolutely no idea what the Spirit of God, what his work really even was in my life. And as I've sought to pursue the Spirit and live in the Spirit and understand what the Spirit's work is in my life, it's increased my worship, 
It's increased my love for people, my love for God, my understanding of self, my perception of others. It makes a difference. This is more than correcting weak doctrine. It's about increasing our fellowship and our relationship with the Lord. Because those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Some of you may be like, I've just been worshiping him in truth. That seems to be working for me. Your worship is depleted, I can tell you that. So we need to kind of understand that. So again, we're kind of talking about the spirit, but we're starting to push it toward uh, a better understanding of uh, worship. Let's look at Genesis 2-7. And you can go ahead and put your finger in Job 32 as well. Speak louder so this class. It's the same Nathan was saying about people who are afraid, you know, to involve maybe the Holy Spirit. Like it was like two, you study, steady, steady, doctrine, 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 like all of yeah. that kind of thing, and it, you're missing. That's not biblical. That's a result of the Enlightenment. It's a result of culture. Okay, if you're come from like a doctrine only church, that's not biblical. Mostly the West. Hmm. So historically, humanity has always understood there's multiple means of knowing. There's an experiential knowing, there's a spiritual knowing, there's a mental knowing, there's a kinesthetic knowing. The Enlightenment, around the time of the Reformation and after, was this emphasis primarily by secularists that said, no, you only know with your mind. So we've reduced the word knowing down to a mental knowing. And therefore, that affects how we perceive Scripture as Westerners and as products of the Enlightenment. This is not the case in other cultures. But the idea is that that which is true is that which is propositionally true. And that is not, in fact, true. So that which is true is not just propositionally true. Love is true, and that's not propositional. Color is true, and that's not propositional. An, a mystical encounter with God is true, and that's not propositional. Being born again is true, and that's not propositional. Right? So we're not opposed to propositions. We can communicate non-propositional truths using propositions. But just because something is written out as a truth statement in a doctrinal statement in a church or a denomination doesn't mean that is all that is true. But some people believe that. You just preach propositions and that brings transformation. And that's partly true, but there's more to it than that. So I can actually have a living, breathing encounter with God, which is not propositional in nature, much like the nature of my love for my wife is not propositional. It's a different kind of knowing. I know my wife in 
a different kind of way. I know those I love in a different kind of way than just knowing a statement to be true or believing a statement to be factual. All right, so we're in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. By the way, I wrote a whole thesis on that as it relates to how we preach as evangelicals and how so much of modern Western preaching is said to be biblical because it's propositional. But in fact, it's more, the style is more a result of the Enlightenment than it is of the Bible. Because the Bi- is the Bible always propositional? Psalms aren't propositional. Proverbs aren't propositional. Ecclesiastes isn't propositional. Job's not propositional. All the ne- Genesis isn't propositional. Um, the Gospels aren't propositional. The only propositional, strictly propositional books in Scripture are, are portions of the epistles which are actually only a small slice of the whole thing. So God, if God has chosen to communicate to us in more than just propositional statements, that says something about the nature of truth. God communicates to us through story, through narrative, through poetry, through proverb, through wisdom literature, through imagery, through apocalyptic literature. So we can actually use those genres in our preaching. Right? Okay, so in Genesis chapter 2, Verse 7, it says there, this is in relationship to how God created us. When the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the man became a living creature. The man became a living creature. Now, um, Most theologians and Bible commentators would understand that there's something different being said there about man than is true of animals. So if you just kind of read it on the surface, it's like, oh, he made him alive. Okay, well, that's the same as a horse. It's the same as a donkey. It's the same as a mule. It's the same as... um, Uh, anything else. But Job helps us to understand that God means more by breathing into us the breath of life than merely that we're living, moving beings. So let's go to Job 32. I'm going to have you read it. Someone with a loud voice. What does Job 32.8 say? Let me ask this question before you read it. Are we merely animals? Answer, Job 32.8. Go ahead. It is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. All right. So what this passage does is helps us to understand more about what God means when it says he breathes into us the breath of life. There's an immaterial part of you that is superior to and different from a horse, your cat, a goldfish. When God speaks in Scripture about creating an immaterial part, so he creates us from the ground, we get that, because that's the physical. The body's laid out on the ground. God breathes into us the breath of life. What God is actually giving us is a spiritual dimension. So this is why when we talk about uh, humanity... We say we are composed of 
body, soul, spirit. There's a spiritual dimension to who I am that is different and distinct from the animal world. And it is that aspect of our humanity that helps us to understand, but also to commune with God. So God is spirit, and God has given us a dimension to our humanity which opens the door or enables us to commune with God on a spiritual level. Your dog does not have that capacity, but you have that capacity. That capacity is marred by sometimes somewhat hindered by sin. So it's like, I don't know how to use that part of me. I've never used it before. Maybe you're a new believer. I don't even know how to use that part. Because there's other things that have gotten in the way. You're not aware that that's part of you. You've maybe grown up thinking you're just an animal with a little more consciousness. But there's actually a part of you which God has put in you which enables you to commune with God. Your spirit gives you spiritual understanding. He's not just talking there about cerebral understanding. It's about spiritual understanding. So God is spirit. This is you, but there's a part of you which God designed to be able to relate to God as spirit. There's a spiritual part of who you are. So this is an optimistic thing for us to hear. There's barriers in the way. Again, we may not be well taught. We may not have exercised that part of our humanity. We may have been told to push, suppress that part of our humanity and just focus on truth. But there's a, so there's a part of Aaron Rock that is spirit given to me by God that allows me to commune with God as spirit. I'm more than just a guy who thinks. I'm more than just a guy who walks around. There's a part of me given to me by God that enables me to communicate with God. So this is helpful for us to understand. Not only is God spirit, and therefore we should worship him in spirit, but there's a part of you that God has given to you that enables you to worship him as spirit. So I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or... Uh, in any way, shape, or form respond to this, but I want you to be thinking about it. To what degree have you exercised that part of your humanity as it relates to your relationship with God? Now, it's true that sometimes God overcomes or empowers, enlightens, we say inspires, certain men to speak on his behalf in an extra special way. So we're going to look at a passage in the Bible that speaks to this. We're going to go to Micah chapter 3. Joel, Amos, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. So if you get to some of those books, you'll find Micah. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah chapter 3, verse 8. How many of you spend a lot of time in Micah? Okay, okay so Micah 3.8. Okay, let me just put this up here. So a human being 
body, soul, spirit. Has this been marred by the fall of man and sin? Yes. So this has been marred. Soul's been marred. Your spirit's also been marred. So there are barriers. There, again, there are hindrances to you communing with God, even on a spiritual level. But look at what it says in Micah chapter 3, verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with power. I want you to keep that word filled in mind because it's a dominant word in the New Testament to help us to understand the nature of the Spirit. I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. This is one of the Old Testament passages that help us to understand. Okay, so, so far, let me write some things down here. Um, God is spirit. You have a spirit. Uh, your spirit uh, enables fellowship. With God, okay? See, this is like a progression of ideas. But, I'm filled with spirit implies it's possible to be sort of depleted. And you could write in there maybe like of the spiritual connection. Or fellowship, if you want. So you have the capacity. God's created that in you. It's the part of you that relates to. It's part of you that relates to God. But we see, even in the prophets, the understanding was certain people get it. They're filled with the Spirit. Certain people are not filled with the Spirit. Certain people are like you could say depleted. They're not living in the spirit. They're not walking with the spirit. Again, this is just like hinting at or alluding to things that become very obvious in the New Testament scriptures. But they're hinted at even early on. Many times the, the prophets speak of themselves as those who are speaking on behalf of God. The spirit of God comes on them. The spirit of God is working through them. The spirit of God is communicating his word to his people through them because other people are not listening. So God works through prophets and other important figures in the Old Covenant to communicate his truth, to sort of like, hey, wake up. There's a part of me that you're not communicating, a, a part of you that is not communicating with me. There's a part of you that is kind of dead to me. And then the New Testament well, let's go to Joel chapter 2. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. So go back. Joel chapter 2. Here what God is doing is he's starting to help us to see that he knows there's a deficit because of sin, and he's hinting at the solution that's going to come. 
Okay? I, you're probably familiar with um, uh, Joel chapter 2. And uh, <clears throat> find your way to... Um, let's go... Let's go back to, I want to get to verse 28, but let's start with, um, okay, let's start with verse 26, Joel 2, just to kind of set us up here a bit. So he's speaking of the future. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no one else and my people shall never again be put to shame. So right now, God is prophesying he's going to bring restoration and renewal to the destruction that they'd experienced because of their sinfulness. Verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Stop. What's prophecy? Think back to the passage we just read. Don't get denominational with me on this one. Okay? I'm not, in, I'm not interested in like a technical definition of prophecy. I want you to think about this passage in light of what we've been talking about so far tonight. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. What were the prophets doing? Okay, speaking on behalf of God. So, God is spirit. You're a spirit. Your spirit enables fellowship with God. Sin, the fall, lack of awareness hinders your spiritual connection with God. You guys tracking with me? Don't miss a step. God reminds his people of that through the prophets. Hey, I'm interested in filling you. I want that part of you to commune with me. God's then saying in Joel chapter 2, fundamentally, the time's going to come when that's going to happen in a fuller way than it's been happening for a long, 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 long time. So I'm not interested right, for the purpose of our discussion tonight in a technical definition of prophecy. What I want to draw your eye to in this text is the idea that God is acknowledging that on a spiritual level, we haven't been doing, we, in the, in the context of Joel 2, seven centuries before Christ, have not been doing a good job communicating with God on a spiritual lever, level, but God is going to fix that problem. So he's going to, Sons and daughters shall prophesy, old men dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, even the male and female servants. In those days I will, what? Pour out my spirit. The word pour is tied to the word fill. For something to be filled, something needs to be poured. God pours out his spirit, and people are filled with his spirit. And then the signs and wonders and everything else. Now normally when people look at this passage, they look at it from the perspective of Pentecostalism. I want to, let's talk about denominationalism. Let's talk about whether God still reveals the future and all that. You know what? Okay, we can have that conversation, but I think that's actually a footnote to the primary purpose of that passage. The purpose of the passage 
is primarily to show that God has seen within his people a lack of spiritual connection to him. A lack of spiritual fellowship. Oh, they were doing a great job worshiping him with their mouths. They were doing a good job worshiping him with their bodies. They had all the routines down. You go to the temple, you walk through this door, you go down this hall, you turn this way, you give this, you do that, right? They had all that down. The tithing, the rhythms, the routines, they had all that down. But the deficit was, you're worshiping me with your body, you're not worshiping me with your spirit. I made you body, soul, and spirit. So why am I just getting body worship? I'm not getting spirit worship. I want the body worship, but I also want the spirit worship. The prophets are coming and reminding you over and over again that God wants to fill you with his spirit. There's, you're missing out on something. So I got to pick choice people to show you what it looks like. And then in Joel 2, God's like, hey, the time's going to come, I'm going to fix it. Now, where, what passage of the Bible, I'm going to test you a little bit. What passage of the Bible was this fulfilled in? Okay, Acts. So let's go to Acts. What chapter? Okay, Acts 2. Go to verse 15 of Acts chapter 2. By the way, when something is missing that shouldn't be missing for a long, 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 long time, and people acclimatized to that, when whatever's missing is given back, it seems very weird and abnormal. It's like, what is this? And this is exactly what happens in Acts chapter 2. God gives his spirit to fellowship with us in a way that always should have been, but because people had not been doing worshiping God in spirit for so long, it seemed incredibly weird to people. So this explains why in verse 15, it says, for these people are not drunk as you suppose. So look, look at the verses before this. Peter's preaching, and he's preaching the crucified Christ, and he's talking about um, God's power being poured out. Verse 1 of this chapter is Pentecost, which is a Jewish festival 50 days after the resurrection, or the Passover, and the Spirit of God comes upon them in a way that's undeniable. I mean, like, overwhelms them. So there's, like, no question. There's flames on people's heads. People are speaking in languages they've never learned. And it says in verse 4, they were filled with the Spirit. Same language that Micah 3 uses. And then, for these people who are not drunk, people are like, they're drunk. This is weird. This is abnormal. No, no. What's happening should be normal. You just think it's abnormal because it's been missing for so long. Since it was only the third hour of the day, but this is what they uttered through the prophet Joel. So then he, he, he uses Joel chapter 2, the passage we just read, as his proof text to demonstrate that God, seven centuries earlier, is now fulfilling that promise. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy and I will show wonder in the heavens above and signs in the earth below and fire and blood and vapors of smoke and all that kind of stuff. The sun will be turned to darkness, the, blood, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. Now, clearly that's the prophecy of Joel seven centuries earlier being fulfilled in the first century. And for our purposes tonight, we're not going to go through this list and talk about the specific nature of prophecy or visions or all that kind of stuff. I just want to look at it from a macro perspective and emphasize this truth. As a result of Christ's work on the cross, God saw fit to give us kind of a renewed opportunity to worship him, not just in truth, but also in spirit. To reignite part of our humanity, which was there from the beginning, which was kind of dead, depleted, not emphasized, so we could have communion with him. Let me just preach a little sermon, by the way, quick. In spite of all that, in spite of all that, 2,000 years later, some people continue to worship God in the way that people did under the old covenant going through the rhythms, going through the routines, walking the aisle, going to the right place, just thinking about truth, defending doctrine, and not worshiping God in spirit. Being afraid of it, being uneducated, being opposed to it, being resistant to it. That's not God's plan for us. And this can happen to people that have been saved for like 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, 50 years. God wants us to to connect with him, to worship him, to have a relationship with him that is spiritual in nature. So I want to look at some passages of the Bible now that help us to see, and there's no one passage of the Bible, by the way, that helps us to understand all of this. So we're going to look at multiple passages of the Bible that help us to understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and commune with the Spirit. Okay? I'm going to go through a couple of them, then we'll have a break, and then come back and look at, look at several more. Let's go to uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 31, for starters. Actually, sorry, let's go to, uh, Acts five, uh, if, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5:18 So there's a couple ways of living. Look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then, the text gives us expressions of what that looks like. So you don't have to, oh, I don't know what that means. I, okay, I agree with it, but I have no idea what that means. You don't have to guess. God's not trying to confuse you. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, 
giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And by the way, that is the foundational text to all... Everyone likes, oh, what's, what's, how's a wife supposed to get along with her husband? How are kids supposed to get along with their parents and all that? All of that is an expression of being filled with the Spirit. See how we like to preach like the practical expressions, but we don't really ground it in the overarching truth? The overarching truth is those are expressions of being filled with the Spirit. So the wife that doesn't submit to her husband is not filled with the Spirit. The husband that doesn't lovingly lead his wife, he's not filled with the Spirit. The, parent, the child that's rebellious toward his mom or dad, he's not filled with the Spirit. The Christian that doesn't worship the Lord in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, is not filled with the Spirit. The believer that does not make melody to the Lord in their heart is not filled with the Spirit. The believer that does not give thanks always for everything in the name of the Lord is not filled with the Spirit. You don't have to, you don't have to guess, am I filled with the Spirit or aren't I filled with the Spirit? You can look at manifestations in your life and know whether you are or not. So we're called to be filled with the Spirit. Now, those are kind of like worshipful expressions and relational expressions. But there's more to being filled with the Spirit than that. So we're going to go back to Acts. And this is kind of where it all started. And we're going to say, okay, they were filled with the Spirit. What did that look like for the early Christians? If Joel chapter 2 was truly being fulfilled in the early church, let's go to Acts 4, then what did that look like? What were the manifestations of it? And I like to ask that question because I want to know, Lord, how do I know if I'm filled with the Spirit? What does that look like? So we got a list of things in Ephesians chapter 5, but we also get a few more indicators in uh, Acts. So we're going to look at three passages. Let's go to Acts 4.8. Acts 4.8. Someone filled with the Spirit there? Oh, he's the guy that preached the message. So if he's preaching the message, and he says people are going to be filled with the Spirit... And then he's filled with the Spirit. We're like, okay, what does that look like for Peter? He's the guy that preached the original sermon. Acts 4.8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this, has this man been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the Name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom you raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you, and so forth and so on. Here's what I want, to, here's what I want you to uh, note. Bold biblical preaching of God's word is a manifestation of being filled with the Spirit. Bold biblical preaching of God's word is a manifestation of being filled with the Spirit. Worship is. Giving thanks is. Having proper role relationships is. And bold biblical proclamation of God's word is yet another manifestation of God's Holy Spirit. Look down at verse 31 of Acts chapter 4. Verse 31.
And then they prayed. And in the place in which they were gathered together, sorry, and, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the, whole, with, with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Two more things to add to the list. What are they? Prayer. No prayer, you're not filled with the Spirit. People that are filled with the Spirit will pray. They'll want to communicate with God. And prayer is just as much of a verbal act as it is a spiritual act. Using your vocal cords, your mouth, your tongue, your teeth, your lips. But it's not just a bodily act. It's a spiritual act. What's the second one? Again, preaching the word of God with boldness. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It's actually one of our pillars. Actually, two of our pillars are in there. Unceasing prayer and unapologetic preaching. Okay, I'm going to give you one more. Acts chapter 6. This is for the doers in the room. Verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. Some say these are the original seven deacons of the church. Maybe, maybe they aren't. doesn't use the word, but they're certainly functioning in some sort of a deacon-like way. Full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And then we'll devote ourselves to, the, to prayer and the ministry of the word. So these guys manifested the filling of the Holy Spirit by acts of service. Okay, we're going to take a break in a minute, but I want to ask you a couple questions just to, before we lose this. Okay, let's shout it out. What are, what are the manifestations of being filled with the Spirit in the passages we've looked at? Boldness. Sorry? Boldness. Okay, boldness in preaching. Prayer. Prayer. Service. Service. Worship. Proper, properly ordered Relationships. Filled with thanksgiving. There might be another one, but that's at least six. Is it possible to do those things and not be filled with the Spirit? No. To do those things and not be filled with the Spirit? Yeah, you can do those things and not be filled with the Spirit. So what are they sourced in? Pardon me? Okay, relationships. I heard someone in here. But what are they sourced in? If you're doing those things, what are they sourced in? Human effort. Now, it's possible then to have two people in the same church, maybe living in the same house, that are doing the same thing. They're manifesting the same religious devotion, but one is manifesting it out of the flesh or religious obligation, and the other is manifesting it out of a fullness of the Spirit living in them and working operatively through them. Which would you rather be? Don't answer this out loud. Which person are you? Which person historically have you been? And if you're the one you don't want to be, ultimately, how, how joy-filled is that? How 
refreshing is that? How, how does that advance your relationship with the Lord? It does absolutely nothing. So we're into like the historic acts that the church commits itself to. We're into the manifestations. We're into the, the acts of service. We're into the prayer. We're into the Bible study. We're into all that kind of stuff. But we want it to be sourced in the fullness of the Holy Spirit living in us. We don't want to reduce that. We don't want to push that aside. And fortunately, the New Testament helps us to see the means of making sure that the things we do in the Christian life are being motivated by the filling of the Holy Spirit, by worshiping God in spirit, and not just by doing things because we were taught to do them in seminary or we were taught to do them in Sunday school, or that's expected of you as part of life in the local church. That will deplete you. It will rob you of your energy. You'll never last doing that. You'll just be a religious person doing the right things, but not motivated for the right reason or not finding your energy or your source in God. So when we come back from break, we'll take 10 minutes. I want to help us to understand some more of the intricacies of how to listen to the Holy Spirit and how to be position ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can continue to do, hopefully, what we've been doing, but make sure that it's being motivated by life in the Holy Spirit and not based upon the culture of this church or religious convictions or peer pressure. Okay, so let's take 10 minutes and then we'll come back and um, spend another 40 minutes or so together. Okay, what I want to do to help us to understand how the Spirit works in our lives, I want us to look at sort of the initiatory acts of the Spirit. We could say like the daily, ongoing work of the Spirit in every believer's life, and then the special acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of some. So this is like, the, you could write the initiatory acts of the Spirit, the daily, ongoing, abiding work of the Spirit in the life of every believer. That would be your second heading. The third is the special acts of the Spirit in the lives of some. So let's look at some of these passages. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. This is all part of like the New Testament age which is setting us up for what happened in Acts 2, kind of God moving us back to a place where we're, communicate, we're communicating with him more in the spirit, we're fellowshipping with him in the spirit. This uh, particular episode is recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. I've just written down two of them. You could also write down uh, Luke 3.16 if you wanted to. And uh, let's, look at, let's look at these. So the uh, first one is, uh, I baptize you with water for repentance. Who's speaking here? John. John the Baptist. I baptize you with water for repentance. What's that all about? Pardon me? No. No. That's how you baptize the people from the Old Testament. Okay, but there's different kinds of baptism in the Bible. In the culture, this is pre-Jesus ministry, this is pre-Pentecost, this is pre 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit baptism, what did baptism symbolize? It was a picture of what was to come. Okay, but yeah, if we look at the whole scripture, that's true. But very simply, it was a rite, R-I-T-E, that demonstrated to others a repentant heart. There's nothing more to it than that. It's not a salvific thing. It doesn't save you. It's not a sign of the Spirit coming into you. None of that. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Repent and believe, manifest it through. You go into a baptismal font. The Essenes did it. Other Jewish groups did it. It's a baptism of repentance. Now, then he says, I'm baptizing you with water for repentance, but, so the reason why I'm like, no, Josie, because he's actually contrasting it to a different baptism that's going to come. But he was coming after me as mightier than me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So it's a different kind of baptism. So Jesus... You look at Mark chapter 1, verse 8, it's repeated there. You look at uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 16, it's repeated there. The gospel writers are all anticipating from their vantage point, put yourself in their vantage point, Pentecost not yet happened yet. God is going to come and through his Holy Spirit baptize us in the Holy Spirit. Then if you go forward, so now we're several decades down the road, Pentecost has happened, the years have rolled by, Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Yeah, this marker is useless, so you just have to listen carefully. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For just Now, he's speaking of the church. For just as the body is one and many members and all members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slave, free, all made to drink of one spirit. So now it's a finished fact. Early in the Gospels, it's, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Pentecost happens. Now we're decades past. For we were all once. So this is a... By the way, don't, we don't believe that spirit baptism is, res, is reserved for some believers. It's for all believers. Everyone gets a full indwelling of the Holy Spirit at the point of their conversion. You may not be fully aware of it, fully conscious of it. Many people don't use the gift that God has given to them to, again, worship God as a spiritual being. But you now, if, so if you're here in this room today and you're a believer... You've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Present tense, God's Spirit is living in you. So think of it this way when we think about filling. Present tense, the fullness of God's Spirit is available to you. But not everybody lives as if that were true. And in that sense, some are more filled practically and some are less filled practically. But positionally, we're all equally filled. So the Holy Spirit, let me say that again. Positionally, we're all equally filled with the Spirit. There's one Spirit. You have the fullness of the Spirit. When you're baptized into the Spirit, the Spirit comes in you at your conversion. How many of us? Everybody. Jews, Greeks, slave, free, all were made to drink of one Spirit. 
But not everybody lives their life taking advantage of the blessed presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. A couple more passages talking about how we kind of enter into life in the Spirit. Let's go to John chapter 3. Verses 5 and 6. Guy says to Jesus, basically, how do I get to heaven? He says, unless one is born of the unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus is like, What are you talking about? How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus says, Truly, truly I say to you, unless born one is born of water, this is by the way, this is not a baptismal text. I can't stand it when people try to see things in the text that aren't there. He's talking about physical birth. So what's born of water? When you're born, amniotic fluid is like everywhere. The birth water. So he's continuing the same idea here. I've been in the hospital room five times. It's always there. There's water. (laughs) So he's talking about physical birth, contrasting that to spiritual birth. Don't make this a baptismal text. Unless one is born of the water, that's your physical birth, and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he goes back and repeats it. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is the spirit. So don't marvel when I say, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and so forth and so on. And so it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. So you have to have a physical birth that involves water. And you have to have a spiritual rebirth that involves the spirit. So when you are born again, you have a spiritual awakening. You're spiritually reborn. The spirit, again, enters into you. Let's go to Titus chapter 3, verse 5. If you're learning to find your way around the Bible, there's five books in the New Testament that all start with T. Longest to shortest. First and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, Titus. Titus is a little one at the end. So if you find one with a T in it, you're getting close. Titus. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. What does that mean? Good reminder of what? grace. You don't merit your salvation by religious works like like every terrible religion in the world will tell you. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, regeneration is the same concept as John 3, born again, regenerate, spiritual rebirth, same idea, by regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So again, there we have this idea of the Spirit renewing, being part of the regenerative act of God. So this is all initial stuff. So this tells us, according to the New Testament, we're all New Testament believers, we get the Holy Spirit, all of us. He regenerates, he rebirths, he baptizes. So you don't have to look for him. He's in you. You don't have to look for the Spirit. It should be a huge relief. You don't have to look for him. You don't have to like shout and jump and hope that he shows up. You already have him. This helps us to understand how we access him in the daily rhythms of life. Galatians 5. Remember I said we have a body, a soul, and a spirit? 
earlier on? The spirit's been renewed. Has the body yet been renewed? No. When's that going to happen? Sorry? The new heavens and the new earth. Our bodies will be resurrected. We'll get, our bodies will be uh, renewed. So our spirits are alive. Our bodies are still dying. So there's, there's a fight on between the flesh, the body, the physical, and the spiritual. And this is why Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, but I say to you, walk by the spirit. Why do we want to do that? What does the next line say? not gratify the desires of your sinful, desire, or sinful nature. Right. The desires of the flesh. You really got to get an ESV going on. Yeah, so. okay. Are you on our worship team? Okay. You're no longer allowed to read scripture in our... No. <laughs> you don't have one yet, Nancy? No. What are you working out of? Uh, new world, new world, new world translation. No, oh, okay, okay. KJV still or NKJV? I think it should be the King James. Okay, the King James. No, this is a Oh, new inspired version. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Good. Okay. And yours? I have uh, the one Jesus uh, used. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus spoke English, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't think this fight is very spiritual we're having. <laughs> okay, so there's a battle on for the desires of the flesh are what? Against the spirit. So you're, you're saved, the spirit of God is in you, you're, you're baptized in the spirit, but there's a battle on because the body part of you has not yet been redeemed and it wants certain things out of life. Pleasure, promiscuity, material possessions, whatever. Okay, carnality. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing what you want to do in your spirit. So what do we do? Throw up our hands? Oh, well. No, here's the solution. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law, now, the works of the flesh are evident. So there's a long list here. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and if we forgot anything else, and the like of these. So I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, present, continuous, ongoing, it's habitual, it marks you, will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruits of the Spirit are evident. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So then verse 25, if you live by the Spirit, you'll keep in step with the Spirit. Aha! If I live by the Spirit, I commune with God in my spirit, I acknowledge His presence, I'm led by Him, I learn to commune and pray to Him and listen to His voice in my life, I will be led by Him. You can, there's two voices, the flesh and the spirit. You can listen to the flesh or the spirit. But let us keep in step with the spirit. So this is just a great passage of scripture. It's very practical. It's helping us to understand 
what life in the spirit looks like. God will make us aware of it. God's given us all the power, the tools, the resources to live a victorious life. Josie. Pardon me? Where is the other voice? The flesh. Yeah. So I didn't quite hear it. Did you say where is the other voice? Yeah. So it's you and your carnality. Right? It's, it's you. So you're fully redeemed. You're on your way to heaven. The Spirit of God is living in you. But your whole humanity has not yet been redeemed. You're spiritually born again, but physically you're still dying. So that flesh, that, that, um, this, this body in and of itself is corrupt and desires that which it should not desire. I mean, you guys all know what this is like. When you want to do something in your flesh, but there's, there's a fight going on in your mind, why, why do I even desire this? This is ridiculous. But you want it anyway. You want revenge. You want to get someone back. Your spirit saying, forgive, put aside bitterness, I I still, I can't, I won't. Or uh, what else do we have? Well, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is not just an issue of controlling your physical body, your genitals, your sexual organs. It's a a sinful nature, uh, a desire for could be dominance, self-satisfaction, hedonism, control, affirmation. It's the flesh trying to take charge. And the spirit's like, I got a better way. It's not just saying no. It's saying, I got a better way. Let's try love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. This study, by the way, if you don't step-by-step start to do some personal evaluation, won't really be particularly helpful for you. You've got to kind of be assessing and analyzing self as we go through these passages. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, notice the small s, to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit, the Holy Spirit of adoption by sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. There's a, that's a personal expression of the Lord, like a child would give to his father. The spirit himself bears witness in our hearts that we are God's children. It's one of the, one of the ways that you know you're a Christian is the spirit of God tells you you are. It's not just because I interview you and determine that you are. The Spirit of God bears witness. There's something alive in you that used to be dead. And if children, then heirs, heirs and fellow heirs with God and Christ. So here we have yet another call to be led by the Spirit. So if God calls us to be led by the Spirit, what does that tell us about the Spirit? This isn't a trick question. He's alive and he leads us. So he's willing to do that. He's willing to lead us. We're going to be led by him. He's not 
God doesn't play games. The Spirit of God is not, it's not like, oh, this is the, the part of God that I'm, I, I don't want you to ever really figure out. This is like the mysterious part of God that you're always going to be scratching your head. I, I, I get Jesus and the Father, I don't get the Spirit. God's not trying to play games with you. But if you just see yourself as body or soul and you don't understand there's a spiritual dimension and you're not exercising the spiritual part of you by l- listening to the Lord, then, yeah, it's going to seem strange to talk about being led by the Spirit. But if that part of you is alive and you're submitting yourself to the Spirit of God and allowing Him to work in your life, He will lead you. There's no, there's no tricks or gimmicks to it. Here are some of the ways that he leads us. Go to John 16. Verse 8. I think I skipped one. We'll go back to it. John 16, verse 8. Again, this is pre-Pentecost. This is still in the Gospels. But Jesus tells us something about what's going to happen. Now we're on the other side of that, so it helps us to understand what is happening or what's available in the here and now. When he comes, now here the Holy Spirit is, is in verse 7 called the helper. That's kind of a telling word. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment Concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me uh, and, the, and the passage continues there to talk about um, everything being the Lord's. So the, the Spirit of God is going to convict you. And he's going to convict you in his role as the Spirit of truth. Where do we find that truth that the Holy Spirit's going to use to convict us by? Is he going to like make up a new set of rules, a new set of truth for each and, indi- each and every individual? The Word of God. So, depends on translation, yeah. So, here's the thing. If you're sitting here tonight, you're like, hey, I, I actually do want to be led by the Spirit. I'm going to make this really simple for you. Like as simple, as simple, as simple, as simple gets. Read your Bible. Period. Study your Bible. Period. If you don't read your Bible and you don't study your Bible, the Holy Spirit has nothing to use to convict you. He's not going to make up a little internal Bible for you. He's going to, you're going to read, your eyes are on the text. You're reading it. You're not thinking about something else. You're reading it. You're rereading. You're understanding. You're circling words. You're cross-referencing. You're making sure you understand the truth. You're studying the text. The Holy Spirit will faithfully take that act and when you need to be convicted, believe you me, he will convict you. If you don't want to be convicted, don't read the Bible. If you 
want to be convicted, and you're wondering, why do I still live in the flesh? Because you're not reading the Bible. Okay, And it's not just, oh, I understand the Bible because I went to church for a long time. There's a difference between knowing and knowing. The demons know. So this is why we, I emphasize, I, I don't want this to be super complicated for people. I emphasize the need for people to read their Bible and to study the Bible. And uh, you should do it every day. Just make a commitment. I'm going to do it every day. I do it every day. I never miss. And when I mean never, I mean never. Every, every single day. Without fail. You guys hear me? Every day. And like I preached on Sunday when I was in London, I, saw, I, I often meet people, well, I, I'm forgetful. I can't get into the habit. That's garbage. Because there's certain things that you never, ever, ever forget. And if there's, if I could just point out one or two things that you never, ever, ever forget, that every single day that you never, ever forget, then that demonstrates you have the capacity never, ever to forget something. And one thing that you never, ever, ever forget is to put your clothes on when you leave the house in the morning. You just never forget that. Come on. You never forget it because it's a habit. It's, you just, it's, it's such a priority to you, you just would never think of forgetting that. So if you forget, if you remember to put your clothes on, but you forget to read the Bible, that just shows your priorities. Period. So just read your Bible every day. Set aside a time when you read the Bible every single day. doesn't matter if you get home at 3 in the morning, you got the flu. The only exception is that if you're unconscious because you're recovering from surgery. Otherwise, you read the Bible every day. Sorry? <laughs> What's that? Don't pretend that you have Alzheimer's. <laughs> oh, don't pretend you have Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, don't forget. Just read your Bible every day. Now, it's not going to be like a radical, earth-shattering encounter necessarily every day. But you're just bringing the Word in. You're giving the Spirit ammunition to use in your life when the need arises call it to mind, to bring the conviction or the encouragement or the rebuke or whatever's needed. Just do it. Period. I have no better advice for you. Just do it. Okay? And don't do it for the next year. Or for the next, I'm going to do it for the next month. No, just do it for the rest of your life. And don't ever miss a day. I just never miss. Ever. Okay, I mean Ever. You guys get it? So don't ever miss. Okay, don't. Good, don't ever miss. Okay, so we have um, Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Do we look at that one? Okay, Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Samaria and Galilee, this is after Pentecost, had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord, so the reverencing God, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The Holy Spirit convicts. What else does he do? 
He comforts. He encourages. Too many people go to others looking for encouragement, looking for comfort. And there's a measure of comfort that another human being can give, but there is a comfort that the Holy Spirit gives that surpasses all of our understanding. So I'm just going to tell you this straight up in case you're, you're thinking this is like a super awesome church and you're just loving it here, and you're like new. Um, yeah. yeah, you'll get over it because we will let you down. Guaranteed, we're very dysfunctional. And I will let you down. Some of you are like, I, all I've seen is good from you. I, then you don't know me. Okay? So I... I'm really... Yeah. I'm really not looking for audience participation at this point. Right? So, okay, we're moving into monologue mode. Okay? Not dialogue. So I'll, I'll let you know when we're back to dialogue. Okay, that's when we're talking about Nancy. So... I'm going to let you down. Mark it down. Aaron's going to let me down. The church is going to let me down. Okay, mark it down. If you're married, you're thinking about getting married, your spouse is going to let you down. Right? God will never let you down. He never will. He's going to bring comfort into your life when you need it. And it's going to be far better than any comfort I can give. But if you're not being led by the Spirit, and you're not allowing that part of you to be a, like alive, then you're not going to get it. Like, don't use the Holy Spirit as your genie just when you need him in a fix. You invite him into your life every day, and he will bring comfort into your life. The comfort can come from just a feeling of ickiness right through to a traumatic, the, the traumatic loss of a, a child. The whole spectrum, from the lesser difficulties right to the most earth-shattering ones. The Holy Spirit can bring comfort. And those of you, I know many of you in this room have gone through like catastrophic stuff. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And the Holy Spirit has just like brought peace and comfort that doesn't even make sense. Because it's not a sense issue. It's a spiritual issue. Right? And that's very uh, real in our lives. Uh, John fourteen seventeen. If you love me, verse 15, you will keep my commandments. That's a preachable sermon right there. I could do a series on that one. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So, in reverse, what does that tell us? Right. If you don't keep his commandments, you don't love him. So our love for God is always responsive. It's not initiatory. We don't love God in order to get him to look our way. We love him because he's done great things for us. We keep his commandments. And by the way, his commandments are not burdensome. They're a huge relief. They always work. They're always best. Your human nature will tell you God is like a old school boss or old school principal that just kind of wants to make your life lousy. No, the commandments are actually for your benefit and his glory. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. 
This is interesting. The, the Holy Spirit is not available to those who do not keep, keep his commandments, who are defined in this context as believers. So the, the, the Spirit is only available to the believer, not the unbeliever. Neither because it neither sees him, so there's no, there's no acknowledgement of him. Why is there no acknowledgement of him? Because the spiritual component of their humanity is still dead. And we commune with the Spirit in our spirit, right? Second reason, nor knows him. What do you mean knows? Like knows about? Does he mean knows about here? Like an intellectual awareness of? How do we know he doesn't mean that? You, don't, you just have to look at the next line. Right. You know him, so it tells us what kind of knowing he's talking about. I've actually underlined this in my Bible because it's a good one. For he dwells with you and will be in you. So this is will be in the sense after Pentecost. How do I know that the Holy Spirit is in me? Because he's in me. <laughs> By the way, to your question there, or some comment we had earlier, this also helps us to see that there is a form of knowledge that goes beyond or is distinct from propositional knowledge. I don't have to prove to some atheist that the Holy Spirit is real if he tries to paint me into a corner. Prove to me using science. I don't need to. Prove to me using logic. Don't need to. Uh, prove to me using mathematical equations. Prove to me using observations drawn from the created world. Don't need to. Because you're telling me you've limited knowledge to proposition, to observation, to scientific knowledge. I actually believe there's a, that kind of knowledge, but I believe there's also another kind of knowledge. And it's real and it's experiential. So I, the Holy Spirit testifies in my life. Oftentimes I preach this. I, I will say something like, when someone paints me into an intellectual corner, and admittedly that doesn't happen that much anymore, because I've been walking with the Lord for a long time. I've done a lot of study. But still, there's, every once in a while, there's like, oh, there's a question. I don't know about that. I could, is this all true? Ah, yeah, it's true. Of course it's true. I know the Holy Spirit. I walk with him. I know God. You're like, what do you mean by that? Well, I know because I know, because I've encountered him in my life. I've felt, if you want to use an emotional word, his presence. I've heard his voice. I've experienced his comfort. And that's a kind of knowing that is as real as looking at an equation that says 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's as real. It's just a different kind of knowing. And the reason why I can know on that level, the 2 plus 2 plus 4 I can know because I have a brain that works. The body's alive. This kind of knowing I know because the spirit is in me. So conversely, the unbeliever cannot know that or understand that. Or why, cannot, why can't he know that or understand that? The world cannot receive because it neither sees nor knows him. Because that part of them is not yet awakened by God's Holy Spirit. Do you guys remember your eureka moment? Some of you remember like when it all kind of... Or it might have been more gradual, like kind of an awakening. I'm not, I don't want to freak those of you out that haven't had like that on your calendar moment of spiritual conversion. But 
do you remember a time in your life where this just was all like, I don't get it. And then it's like, hey, I get it. That's what we're talking about here in your life. And that's that spiritual life that is uh, given to us by the Lord. Let me just give you a couple other passages, and then I want to go to the other category. You can write down, I give you Acts 9.31, John 16.8. Uh, okay, John 14.17, did I give you that one? Yeah, we did that one. Okay. So now over here, so this is specific. The Spirit of God does perform unique tasks based upon his particular purposes for you. So right now we're talking about things that are available to everybody. And there's more. We could, we could kind of add to that, that bracket there. We could add to that list. Um, but the Holy Spirit does also do unique things for specific individuals. And I'm going to give you one related to leadership in the church and one related to spiritual giftedness. So Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. The flock is a reference to what? Church. Uh, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church, which was obtained by his own blood. So here God is, through, um, the, whole, the apostle is speaking, if you go back to verse 17, now from Miletus he, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So the word elder is the same word for overseer, same idea there. And so in the church, God it's not like well, everybody's an elder, everybody's an overseer. He chooses some based upon his sovereign choice to be elders. And eldership, properly understood, is not a popularity contest. It's not a democratic vote. It's not who seems like the best candidate. It's an affirmation of the Holy Spirit's calling in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So notice that the Holy Spirit is specifically involved in the appointment of leaders in the church. Now, this is totally not new. You look at the leaders, even when there weren't elders, you look at the kings of the Old Covenant, you look at the prophets of the Old Covenant, you look at the judges of the Old Covenant, you look at the patriarchs. We could look at multiple examples where the Holy Spirit selected someone, generally someone you wouldn't expect to lead his people. So the Holy Spirit is, work, is operative in appointing and affirming the calling of some to the office of overseer, which again is just kind of an extension of what's been going on all through the Old Covenant. The Holy Spirit also gives spiritual or extra extraordinary gifts. So we talk about spiritual gifts a lot, but the Holy Spirit also gives extraordinary gifts under both covenants. I'm, I'll give you several passages and then we'll look at the prime New Testament one. Exodus 31 verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. Numbers 11, verse 17. Numbers 27, verse 18. 
Judges 3, verse 10. 1 Samuel 16, 13 to 14. You can look those up on your own time. Those are all examples of the Holy Spirit giving somebody like an extraordinary ability or gift or office to accomplish something on God's behalf that not everybody has. And likewise, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 and 14. And this is a pretty well, pretty well known passage of the Bible. It talks about spiritual gifts. And look at verse 4 of chapter 12. Now there are varieties of gifts, but it's the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So how many people get a spiritual gift? To each, so everyone gets it. But are they the same? No, they're not the same. Who are they for? The common good. So this is why we talk about all the spiritual gifts exist not primarily for your benefit, but for the edification, fancy word for building up the church. So you cannot, you know the people that say I'm a Christian but I don't need to go to church? Well, I mean, you can be saved and not go to church, but then you can't use your spiritual gifts because they're not primarily for you to enjoy. They're for the common good. Not to mention the fact you, you can't even put into practice like, 45 one another's in the New Testament. So you can be a Christian, but an extremely lame one if you're not part of a local church. For to one is given the spirit of utterance. So he kind of goes on the wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, working of miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits. These are all like the sign gifts. Interpretation of tongues is a portion to each one individually. And then we go down into this extended dialogue about all the different... Um, he uses like the, the, the body. Every part's kind of important. Some are more prominent. Some are less important. Like the earlobe. You don't think about caring for your earlobes that much, but your eyes, those are kind of important. But the earlobe is created by God. It's also important. Someone chops it off with a scissor, you'd notice it. So you care for it, just like you care for the eye. It's not as important in a certain way. But if it's damaged, you're going to know it just as much as if your eye's been poked. And then we have... Um, Different in the, in the, ta uh, the tail end of uh, chapter 12, it's talking about different offices that are tied to those gifts. Then a parenthesis on love because there was some abuse of gifts. The people started to use them for themselves. He's like, no, it's actually about love. The whole love chapter is about gifts. It's not really about your wedding. Like it's a great wedding text, but it's really, it's not really about that. There's two passages of the Bible that are often used at weddings that really aren't about weddings. 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, it has application. And then, um, your people will be my people, my people will be your people. It's like two women talking to each other. Like Ruth and Naomi. It's not a guy and a girl. It's not about marriage. So I, I just find that kind of lame to quote at a wedding. Sorry if you did but it's very much out of context. And then all the different... Uh, did you guys quote that at your wedding? Your people be my people, my people be your people. It's not a wedding text. It's, it's about something different. Okay. You did, Beth? Oh, okay. 
Oh, I did your wedding. Okay, yeah, that's true. I wouldn't have done that. It might have been in a speech or something. Some of, one of you did it, because I can tell. Some of you had this idea. Did you have it, Carbs? No. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, then anyway, the verse, chapter 14 goes back to the spiritual gifts. So here's the thing. This, we're not going to get into a discussion about the spiritual gifts in like the less than one minute we have left. But the point is, is God, through his spirit, gifts certain gifts to different people in the church. So here's the takeaway. Not only do I have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit does in my life things that only the Holy Spirit can do, but the Holy Spirit wants to use you to do in my life what he's not going to do by himself and what I can't do for myself. So therefore, our relationship with the Holy Spirit is vertical and manifestation of the Holy Spirit are also relational. So the Holy Spirit works in my life through you, as you use your gifts in my presence and I benefit from them, and I use my gifts in your presence and you benefit from them. So when each discovers his gifts and participates in the life of the church, they're actually, in a sense, bringing the work of the Holy Spirit into the other believer's life. So it's not just me and Jesus hanging out or me and the Spirit hanging out. I hang out with you because there's certain things the Spirit will only do through you for me. And there's other things the Holy Spirit will do apart from you for me, directly in my relationship with him. So there's kind of this vertical and this horizontal axis to the Holy Spirit's work in my life. And that's just really cool. Because it forces me to stay in relationship with you. Okay? So uh, next couple of weeks we're going to talk about worship. And I really just want to help us to see how to worship the Spirit and how... The work of the Holy Spirit energizes and is the foundation of all of our worship life as a church. So I um, hope, hope this has been helpful for you. Have a great night. Walk in the Spirit. If you haven't read your Bible today, what are you going to do tonight? Read your Bible.